is the, the word there in the first verse of chapter 4 is he was exceedingly angry, displeased. He was angry on top of angry, Jonah was, because they repented. We see the wickedness of his heart. Here are 120,000 ignorant people. Maybe they were children. Maybe they were mentally handicapped. Some of them, maybe inside the city, there were men and women who didn't know moral right and wrong yet. They had no idea they had offended God in any way. And they repent from the greatest to the least, the least to the greatest. And this prophet is angered by God's grace and mercy. He's angered. He's put off by it. Jonah is really refusing, we see, to live in the economy of grace. And this is no different than you and I often, is it? We want grace for ourselves, but we want justice for everybody else. It comes out in me all the time. You might find some kinship with Jonah on this point. And maybe we don't say it bluntly, but we feel it to our very core. Why do we operate this way? Why do we want God to be kind to us, kind to our family, and judge everybody else? Maybe not everybody, but it's particularly people we don't know or don't care about. Why do we want judgment for them and grace for us and those we love? Because our hearts and our minds are twisted. They're evil because they're sinful. And we are not like our Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, we should love mercy and love our enemies. Why? So that we might be like our Father in heaven. Since the fall, we have not been like our Father in heaven. That's the problem of mankind. We are fallen to our very inner core. Jonah should uh, be seen here as mourning. Get this, he's mourning over the mourning and repentance of Nineveh. They ripped their clothes, sat in ashes, and repented to God. And now Jonah has done the same thing. Except instead of repenting of his personal sin and saying, What a witness these people have been to me. These pagans heard your word and repented. And I, your prophet, was rebellious at your word. Oh God, have mercy on me. What does he do? He goes to the east of the city, sets up this booth, and whines and cries. Because they're not going to be destroyed. God, I knew you would do this. Because you're a merciful God. I knew that from the beginning. And see what you're doing? Just like a spoiled child, Jonah goes out and pouts and mourns and weeps over the repentance of an entire city. We see his wickedness come out. Jonah sought comfort during his mourning. He looked for comfort. We were saying that the Lord is our shelter this morning. Well, Jonah didn't want the Lord as a shelter. Jonah wanted to create for himself a shelter. Now, God hadn't told him to create a shelter. He does this on his own. He goes outside in verse 5, we see in chapter 4, and he creates for himself a booth. This was a booth that would have been common for the people in Israel in his day. They had a, a feast of booths that they celebrated yearly, a feast of tabernacles. It was to show them the heavenly city. It was to say, you are pilgrims in this land passing through. And so build yourself a temporary structure and spend the month in celebration of the great uh, promised land that is to come. 
Don't make your home here, make your home in heaven. That was what they were learning. What did Jonah do? He went outside and built this same booth, type of booth, out of vines and leaves and underbrush, and sat down and mourned and wept, feeling sorry for himself, because thousands had come into the kingdom of God. Thousands had repented. He was seeking comfort. He was seeking shelter. He couldn't find it in God because of his rebellious heart, so he made for himself a shelter. And he sat down under it. It would have provided very little shade, though, in the Mesopotamian heat and sunshine. Now, I've never visited that area of the land. I know uh, Jason Crow spent some time in that area of the world. But what I've read, at least, tells me that the average temperature in Mesopotamia, Nineveh, the area of Nineveh, would be somewhere around 100 degrees, 100 to 110 degrees. And it would be extremely dry. Extremely dry. And so you can imagine, you pull up, if you pull up grass or weeds in your yard, how long does it take them to wither in July? Not long. They wither and go away just like that, don't they? So here we have an example. Jonah's going to not go to God as his shelter. He's not going to repent. He's going to display his wickedness. He's going to go build for himself a shelter, which is inadequate. Like all the shelters we build for ourselves, and like all of the things we do for ourselves outside of the grace of God, Jonah's provision is insufficient. And God's going to show him just how insufficient it really is as we go through the story. Maybe you've done this. I I don't know your heart. I know I'm guilty of it. That when God displays grace, I display judgment. And I go a step farther. I then, because I know I'm in rebellion, make for myself a shelter, a provision. And what I do is I don't usually go out and build a booth, okay, and live in it for a while. I don't usually do that. Usually what I do is I self-pity. And I self-loathe. And I say, how pitiful is this? I mean, look at what God's doing. Why can't He be this kind to me? Why can't He help me when I'm in this great distress? Here He helps everybody else. Everybody else has these things. Why can't I? He's made for Himself a shelter, a booth. And I do the same thing, and I'm sure you may be guilty of similar sin. So in this dry, hot, sunny area of the world, he builds for himself a withering shelter. So Jonah then receives from God a gift. And what is that gift? We see it there in verse 6. Look at it. God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Now, uh, I know many of you have a translation that reads a gourd. Okay? Some of you might actually have one that reads a vine. For some reason, people have... uh, struggled over this all through church history. Augustine got into a big argument with Jerome and his translation. and I mean, it's all this discussion about what kind of plan is it? And you lose the picture. Again, it's that analytical mind getting in the way. He's telling a story. Hello, a plant came up and grew to full maturity overnight. And we want to focus on, well, it was it a gourd, a cucumber, a vine, ivy, Now, that's what Jerome said it was. It was some kind of ivy or something. Then Augustine replied back, you know, but it couldn't be ivy. You know, ivy runs across the ground. And 
I mean, this silly debate about what is this thing? Why do we get trapped on these trivial matters? The fact is that Jonah, not only did he receive this gift from God, but look what it says. You remember in verse 1 it said he was exceedingly angry because the people repented and God didn't destroy them. Look at verse 6. When he received the plant, what does it say about him? Verse 6 says, and it made, it made it come up over Jonah that it might shade, give him shade. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. What a picture. He's exceedingly angry because maybe 120,000, some people might say, to maybe a million people repent and are saved. He's exceedingly angry. Angry upon angry, the Hebrew says. And a little shrub comes up to shade his bald head. Now let's don't laugh too much at that. Some of you aren't bald. That's a big deal. But And I can kind of feel that with him. You know, my head burns when I get in the sun too, obviously. But he was angry, exceedingly angry upon angry that people are saved and not destroyed. And then he's joyful upon joy. Happy upon happy. Because a little shrub came up and gave him some shade. And we might question the exceeding wickedness of the heart of mankind. That he can be pleased and happy over a shrub and just as angry because God has mercy on a nation. This is amazing to me. It was amazing to me as I studied. It's amazing when I hear myself saying it even now. Because it's not amazing because, wow, Jonah's a bad guy. It's amazing because I think, wow, how much is he like me? I act this same way sometimes, like a spoiled child wanting my way. When I get my way, I'm happy. When I don't get my way, look out. (laughs) I'm not happy. Exceedingly, gleeful, joyful. Jonah has a twisted logic operating in his mind. A plus B is equaling C, but that's in man's realm. He doesn't have a mind like his father in heaven. What do I mean by that? It's logical. If the world reading this story reads it, they say, well, that's how I would react. My enemy wasn't destroyed, therefore I am angry. My head gets shade and shelter and I'm happy. And the world says to us as Christians, why is that so shocking to you? What does that matter? That's how I would react. And yet God would say, you love a bush more than you love people. You love, worse than that, you love your own comfort more than you love an entire city. That's the question of God. The world sees no problem with this logic. It makes sense. Our comforts are met. We're happy. They're not met. I'm unhappy. So Jonah goes out of the city, he, he, he weeps and cries because Nineveh has repented. He looked for his own shelter, he made his own shelter which was insufficient. He receives a shelter from God and he's overjoyed, like a kid in a candy shop. And then in verse 8, 
God takes away that shelter. And he becomes suicidal. Jonah isn't just upset. He wants to die because a shrub died. I mean, you know, let's let's get real about this. Worst thing that might could happen to you today, you know, let's think of it, whatever it is. Physically, not not loved ones dying. I'm talking about physical things taken away. You go outside and your car is gone. Somebody stole it. Do you want to kill yourself? Let's say that's gone and you find a way home and you get home, your house is burned down. All your stuff's gone. Do you, you want to kill yourself? Do you see how twisted his mind is? He has life. He has the grace of God. He could have died in the sea. He was swept up by an o- out of the ocean by a well. He's seen God be merciful to 120,000 of his enemies. And he wants to kill himself because a shrub died. Do you see the picture of how illogical biblically this really is? It's really laughable almost, except that we'd be laughing at ourselves oftentimes. We have families, we have friends, things are going right, we have a bad day at work. And no, we don't say we want to die, but something close to that. The world's coming to an end. We get the ugly duck, I mean the, the, the duckling syndrome, whatever that is where the sky's falling. A little duckling. Where the sky's falling. I, the who? Chicken little. Wrong bird. Chickens. Thank you. Wrong nursery rhyme. Chickens. Chicken little syndrome. And, and we, the whole world has come to an end. You know? Over something that small. And we refuse to see the grace of God. This isn't just a picture of Jonah. I would say it's a picture of me. It's a picture of you. Calvin pointed out rightly in this point that Jonah is not in verse 8 talking to God. He just talks to himself. In verse 1... Two, he talks to God. He prays. At least he's praying. Down in verse 8, he doesn't even say mention prayer. He's not praying anymore. He's just stewing, as my grandmother calls it. He's just talking out loud to himself. He's not saying, God, kill me. He's just loathing himself. Feeling pitiful for himself. This is really an irrational expression, really. I mean, just think about how silly it is. But he simply has a twisted and corrupted mind like mine and like yours. And so he feels self-justified. And we see that in verse 9. When God says, do you do well to be angry over the plant? That's in 9a. And what does he say in 9b? Yes, I do well to be angry. I'm, I, can, I should even be angry to death over this. He justifies himself. There again, Lord forbid I have a bad day and my messenger sent from God, my wife says, what are you whining about? Life's pretty good. Let's quit pitying ourselves. And what do I say? She says, I mean, really, come on, is it really that bad? Yeah, it's that bad. As a matter of fact, if you were in my position, you'd feel that way too. See, 
Jonah has gone from being rebellious to being belligerent. And he's no longer angry at the Ninevites. He's mad at God. It's a trail of sin, isn't it? That cycles worse and worse. At the beginning of the story, he's running from God in rebellion. God brings him back. In the middle of the story, he's a little bit repentive. You know, he's thankful that he was well lunch. Still alive. Towards the end of the story, he's angry at the Ninevites because how dare they repent, you know. And then, God, what are you doing? But he's still a little bit respectful. He's lost all respect at this point. He's talking to himself because he doesn't want to talk to God. And when God addresses him, he justifies his own actions. And we like to question whether we are deceitful and wicked to our very core. The creature would dare rise up against the Creator and say, how dare you take my shrub of all the dirty, rotten things you could do? I deserve that shrub. And I'll have it. It's mine. And as I said, it would almost be funny. The problem is, I'm just like it in many ways. We see Jonah's exceedingly wicked heart. That's not the end of it, though. That's a run through the story from Jonah. Let's look at it. God's great grace and mercy, which are displayed by His sovereign examples to Jonah. God graciously gives Jonah shade from the hot sun and wind. God's not obligated to do this, by the way. But God does this as a pictorial example to Jonah. God has the full intention of showing the prophet how foolish his displeasure and hatred for Nineveh are. God at the beginning says, okay, you want to be angry about Nineveh? I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to show you how wicked you are, son. We're not sure what type of plant it was. I said that earlier. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, it grew up overnight. I don't know about you gardeners out there, but I've never had that happen. Plant a cotton seed and have a full-grown cotton plant the next morning. This is a miracle of God. It's no less a miracle than when He sent the fish. It's a miracle. He has sent this plant, created it, put it there, and it sprung up overnight. Why? Because God has compassion on Jonah, just like He had compassion on Nineveh. Because God's a great God of great mercy and great grace. He's patient and He abounds in love. That's what Jonah described him as, and God is living up to who he is. He was exceedingly gracious towards these Ninevites because, let's face it, he didn't have to warn them. He could have wiped them out. He didn't have to send a prophet to them. He could have just destroyed them. They deserved it. But out of his mercy, he sends Jonah, and they repent, and he doesn't do it. And he does the same thing for Jonah. He doesn't have to plant a plant and make it grow overnight to shade his bald head, but he did it. Because he's merciful. Okay? Now, as I'm going through this, think in your mind, which is the greater mercy? Which is the greater mercy? Which one should he have been excited about? Which one should he have thought, well, that was no big deal? For our God. Think about it as we go through this. God is gracious to Jonah. God sovereignly 
Not only does he miraculously make a bush, but he miraculously makes a cutworm to kill the bush. Whatever kind of bug this is, worm it is, whatever it is, God has made it and it severs the life supply of the shrub and it withers when the sun hits it. Immediately it withers away. So Jonah goes from exceeding joy to desperation and suicide in the blink of an eye. Why? Because God's teaching Jonah a lesson. Again, we see the mighty power of God over His creation. The path of the worm is set by God, just like the death of the sparrow is determined by His mighty hand. Jesus said, not even one sparrow falls to the ground unless He knows it and sees it. And so this is His sovereignty over His creation. It's a great rebuke to the prophet. Why? Because he's angry over a rebellion. Uh, he's angry over the repentance of a people and suicidal over a bush. It makes no sense. God rebuked Jonah for his twisted pity for the plant and his unmerciful concern for Nineveh. In verse 9, God is gentle with him. Look in verse 9a where he says, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? That's a gentle reminder, like in verse, it parallels verse 4. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Same words. Do you do well to be angry over Nineveh, Jonah? Jonah doesn't reply audibly. But by action, we know he said the same thing in his heart. Yeah, I do well to be angry. After the plant comes up, withers away, and he faces the scorching wind and heat of God, he then is bold enough to say, yes, I do well. But God's gentleness is still here. In verse 9, He gently reminds him, come on now, Jonah, think about this. You have no concern for all of these people and you have all this concern for an inanimate bush. Jonah, come on. But in verse 10, His mercy and His gentleness is gone. He gets real toe-to-toe. It's almost as if Jonah makes a reply to God, so God makes a reply to Jonah like He did to Job. And He says, look in verse 10, You pity the plant. You didn't labor for it. Nor did you make it grow. You had no relationship with it. It came up in the night. It went away in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city, Jonah. There are more than 120,000 in that city that don't have any knowledge at all of left to right. And there's a bunch of beasts in that city that are worth a lot more than that bush that died. And the point is made, isn't it? It should be. Like Jonah, we want grace for ourselves and those we love. And we really are indifferent and even callous towards those who we don't know and don't love. And we're more concerned about our own comforts. I am. Than I am about the salvation of the thousands who are lost. And God would say, 
I really could care less about your comfort. I love those people. And Jesus says, you should have a heart like your Father in heaven. That's the lesson for us in Jonah. That's the overall drawn down picture that he has given us. He lays it out very clearly. So what's the analogy? There's two ways this analogy applies quickly. We're going to look at these. It's first seen in this analogy between God's mercy on Nineveh and Jonah. Okay, and His mercy on Jonah. Let's look at it that way first. Then we're going to see the second, which I think is even more powerful. Okay, so the story here. God has sovereignly chosen to be merciful to Nineveh. He sent them a prophet. He warns them. They repent and He doesn't destroy them. He has mercy on them. What does He do for, for Jonah in this story? He has mercy on him. He puts a plant out there and the plant grows up to shade him from the scorching wind and heat. Okay? You see that? God's merciful on the people of Nineveh. God is merciful on Jonah. The analogy so far is the same. God caused the repentant response to spring forth from the people of Nineveh overnight. Overnight. They just... Went from rebellious, evil, wicked, no thought of God to they heard the message and they repented and they were always thinking of God, begging God to save them. What did he do? In the, what, what's the comparison for us here in the story? Joy springs out of the heart of Jonah literally overnight. Think with me. This will be so clear to you, I think. Think You don't even have to read the story, but just think, has anywhere in the story to this point, has Jonah been happy? Have we ever seen him happy one time? Well, we saw him partially repentive. But even in the whale's belly, we're not told he's happy as much as he is thankful, praising God for his salvation. But as soon as he hits the beach, he's not happy. He's not really happy about going to Nineveh. Nowhere do we see him happy until the plant comes up. So overnight, the people repented. And overnight, he goes from hateful, rebellious, angry prophet to joyful. What changed? A bush came up. That's how wicked our hearts are. How unlike God we really are. Nothing in our life changes except a little more comfort comes our way and we're joyful. We're pleased. We're excited. We're not just thankful to God for it. We're really sidetracked in our joy. Jonah got sidetracked even. The analogy is there in the Scripture. God had compassion and mercy on the people of Nineveh because they truly repented from their sin. We see that in the story. Just like he sent the worm to destroy the shrub. In less than a hundred years, he's going to destroy Nineveh too. Literally in the time of God, their repentance lasted about as long as that night that that shrub lasted. See, Jonah's trapped in the time that we operate in. 
He can't see a hundred years down the road. But literally Nineveh, to God, repented and it went away overnight. The city returns to its immorality and in Nahum's time it is destroyed. Just like God created this bush that came up overnight and He sent a worm which He sent to destroy it overnight, the city will also be cut down in God's time. But it's in God's time, not Jonah's time. And God had a lot of repentance that He wanted to see and a lot of forgiveness He wanted to give and a lot of mercy He wanted to pour down before He destroyed them. Because He's God, He has the right to do this. God is consistent. Jonah is twisted. God is seen in the story to always be the one having mercy from beginning to end. And Jonah is always angry, always twisted, always loathing himself or someone else. What do we see from this first way of looking at the analogy? The prophet is self-consumed. He has no, no real concern for the glory of God. No concern for his fellow man. He's only worried about Jonah. I don't want to go to Nineveh. They're my enemies. I don't want you to forgive them because I want them to get justice. I want my plant because it makes me feel good. And yeah, I do good to be angry about that plant, God. It was mine and you took it away. He's consistent in his unrepentive, twisted way and God is seen as totally consistent. It's the same way for us, isn't it? God is not merciful one day and then not merciful. God is always merciful. God isn't one day having justice and then another day not giving justice. God is always giving justice. God is always loving. God is always gracious. God is God, unchanging and unmoved. We're the ones who are twisted. So we see the analogy from one side. Let's look at it again. The analogy also can be seen, this, this is the way I like it, and I really connect with it, is the God's pity for Nineveh and Jonah's pity for a shrub. God showed great mercy toward a city of a hundred, over a hundred thousand people. He labored over the city since the days of the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 10 records Nineveh for us. Do you realize thousands of years have passed when we find it here? God has been laboring over that city, laboring over that city, making that city, giving it strength, giving it power, opening the wounds of mothers so they might bear children. He's growing the city. Jonah loves a plant. Now, God loves a city and Jonah loves a plant. Jonah loves a plant he did not create. He did not labor over. He didn't have a long relationship with it. Yet he loved the plant. He was exceedingly happy over the plant. It's the only point in the story that he moves away from his suicidal self-loathing to happiness. So we see God and we see Jonah. 
God loves a city which he created, souls that he put on the earth. And Jonah loves a plant that he didn't do anything for, but it was his plant. Jonah wants to give mercy to a plant and to himself. My head gets hot. And by the way, I don't think it's fair you killed that plant. What did it ever do to you? God has mercy on a great nation, a great group of people. And hundreds of thousands of animals. No, they're not humans, but they're worth more than a shrub. God loved these people. God loved these animals. And Jonah loves an inanimate plant. But what did he really love? Did he really love a plant? Did he, get, did he become Greenpeace on us? Did he join the Green Party and start hugging a tree? For plants everywhere that were dying? I mean, plants were dying all over the world. Was Jonah worried about all the other plants that were crying out under the curse of God? Was he worried about global warming in his day? Maybe that's what it... There it is. Global warming right there in the text, isn't it? He sent a hot sun and a scorching wind. That's got to be global warming and it killed this plant. How dare God? So should we take up his cause and be like him? Did he really pity all these plants? And do we really pity animals and plants? No, we really don't. We pity ourselves. It offended Jonah that the plant died because it was his plant. If it had been a Ninevite's plant, he'd have said, Get them, God. I'm glad you're finally doing something about those people over there. If it's my dog, I don't want it to die. If it's your dog, well, okay. No big deal. It's just a dog. We, we're just like Jonah. We, you know, I don't want my kid sick, but your kid gets sick. Just keep him at home. I don't want him. Don't want to feel pity for him. We exemplify these same traits. Selfish, stingy, self-consumed, unconcerned, just like the prophet. And yet, what does God do? God continues to show him mercy. God gives him the plant. God continues to communicate with him. It's the perfect analogy to show the exceedingly great character of God and the deficient character of, an, of a, any man. Not just Jonah, but any of us. You say, who do we serve as God? I say, read the book of Jonah. We serve a God who has pity on those who don't deserve it. And you say, well, who am I? I say, read the book of Jonah. We pity things that don't even deserve our pity. And we're worried about things we shouldn't even be worried about. Our name, our possessions, our comfort. That's the story of mankind. So how does it apply to us? We need to celebrate the greatness of God's mercy toward us, toward all those around us. We need to dig deep into our heart and search for this insidious sin of being consumed with our personal desires and our own needs as opposed to the needs of people who live around us. We need to develop a love for the people of Jacksonville, Anniston, Ohatchee, Piedmont, Oxford, Calhoun County. The same love God has for them. We need to pity those who deserve pity. Or who need pity, not deserve it. And call them to repent that they are not destroyed. And we need to begin to pray for our enemies. 
the great cities and begged them for yet another outpouring of revival before God draws this world to an end. I told you I looked for an analogy. You know, I think we have the analogy. I think it's made clear for us that this is the Christian spirit, that we mimic the heart of our Father. Tim Keller, preaching on this same text, used the example of how we should react to the world around us so we might be like God. Of those who started hospitals in the Middle Ages, they were in a sense a rough hospital. Homes set aside in cities where the plague was wiping out thousands. Homes of individual Christian people who were not sick and their children were not sick. And they took in these sick and dying people with no regard to their own lives, to their own comfort, or to their own children. So that those, child, those other people might live. And they ministered to them. And Keller said, Jonah went outside the city and suffered for his own discomfort and for his own cause, not the cause of God. And like those people in the Middle Ages who took in the sick and dying, even to their own death. I read the accounts after I read his sermon. I went and found my own accounts. Christian folks, think of this, took these people in knowing that they were, would catch it and die. They did it willingly. Nobody asked them to. They received no money for it, no compensation. And many Christians died as a result of helping others. And even one account was that many people in this one great city in Europe lived who initially had the disease. They lived. And the people who gave them care died. They literally died so others might live. That was the attitude of the Christians of the Middle Ages. And what Keller's whole point was, are you more like Jonah, crying and weeping over your own discomfort and your own loss, or are you like those Christians in the Middle Ages who exemplify the heart of God and say, if it costs me my own life, I want others to have life. I want others to live. And may God be merciful to them through me. I would like to be the hero in this church and say, I'm just like those Middle Ages people. But I got to tell you, the first thing I thought was I wouldn't let my wife and my children die. (laughs) And I immediately thought, how are you responsible for these men to take people in their home knowing they could infect their own family and their own self? And that just exposes my heart and shows how much work I need to do And I hope how much work you'll be willing to do to uncover this insidious, self-consumed, selfish pride and rebellious nature. We are twisted. God is not. God is consistent. And what is He? Consistently merciful, loving, gracious, patient. He is a great God. So how does it apply? 
A lot of it's already applied. But I'll just say this. How does it apply for Grace Fellowship? We have to ask ourselves, will we be like Jonah? That's our nature. Or will we be like our Father? Will we be like God? And will we pity the world the way He does? Let's pray. Father, again, we come to You at the close of this time. It's heavy stuff. It's not hard to understand, but it is heavy. Um, God, for us to think about these deep sins in our own life, my own life, is hard for us. So God, be, be even merciful in this, that we would not dismiss the message because it's uncomfortable for us. Don't, don't let us just dismiss your teaching because we don't like it. Help us to look into our hearts and see the truth that we are wicked and you are not. That we are confused and twisted and you are consistent and perfect. Help us to look inside not so we might feel sorry for ourselves but so that we might repent and have mercy on the world. Lord, I know that you are faithful and I know you will do this. So I'm just asking you aloud Lord, for my sake and for these that are gathered here's sake, I'm asking you aloud, Lord, to do the work of conviction, to plant the seed in good soil that it might come up and bear much fruit in the lives of Grace Fellowship. <coughs> and that Grace Fellowship might for the years to come be known as a church that pities the world, not ourselves and not our possessions and not our comfort. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We worship you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us and you're dismissed.